Amen. So when I, when I was growing up, one of, the, um, one of the things that we did every Saturday as a family was every Saturday we went to my grandfather's house. So my parents would take us, sometimes my father was working, my mother would take us, and, and four of us siblings. The fifth one was quite a bit older than um, the rest of us. He was born before the war, or just when the war started, and um, that's the Second World War, not the Iraqi War or anything, okay? So he was, he was born just before it started, then my dad went away in the Air Force for years, and so there was a big gap with kids in our family, and then they made up for lost time and had four of us in a five-year span. So, so the, the four of us would go with my mother to my grandfather's house, and I really didn't like it. And the reason I didn't like it was we were threatened all the way there. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? All the way there, we're threatened. Now, you, you kids have better behave today. No arguing, no squabbling, no fighting. You, you, you better just behave yourself. And, and all the time we were there, you lived in terror of the look from my mother. Right? Now, now my grandfather was, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I, he was somebody I got close to or got to know that well. And he, he, he died when I was about 11 or 12 years old. But, but, but he was, to me, was a kind of a little bit of a scary kind of figure. He was a big man. Runs into family. He was, you know, he was a big man. And, and we, you know, we were always told, you don't sit in your grandfather's chair. And we were, we were always told at 4.45 on the TV, they gave you the British soccer results. And Saturday's the big day for soccer there. And the results came on the TV at 4.45. And you could bet on the results. And my grandfather always needed the results to check off whether he'd won. And you could guarantee at 4.45 we were ushered into the kitchen and told, you stay there till I tell you. Because granddad's got to check his football scores. It was scary. It really was. The only thing I liked about it was as we were leaving, he'd always give my mother money and say, buy them ice cream. You know, and I loved that because it raised my hopes. We never saw the ice cream, but anyway, that's, that's, that's another story altogether, you know. But one of the things I remember about my grandfather is because he really was a big guy, the, the way that he kind of walked, to, you know, to carry his weight, I remember that. And then there was a life-scarring moment for me as a teenager. I can't remember what I was doing, but I was out on the, the, the sports field at the school, and my mother must have been there. And I, I, went, I walked towards my mother and went to say hello to my mother. And she looked at me and said, you know something? You walk just like your grandfather. I was a teenager. I thought I was cool. I know I was overweight, but I still thought I was cool. And it scarred me. And I've been in therapy ever since. Because it, it's like, you walk like your grandfather. And it's like... Okay, you know, and now and again, well, not now and again, regularly I kind of watch our service again just so that I can see how I did things and what I might be able to do better. And, and, and I often see when I walk up on the stage and I think, I do. 
I do. I walk like my grandfather. It wasn't one of my ambitions in life, but apparently that's how it's worked out. Like my grandfather. Which brings me to this, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Romans chapter 8, 29. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son, so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So here's the thing. So every one of us who knows the Lord today, the Bible says God knew us in advance. God knew that we would become His children. And God's plan for us, even before we were born, here was what God's plan for us was, He chose them to become like His Son. God chose us to become like Jesus. That's what He wants for us. That's His purpose for us. And that's what God is doing in every one of us on this journey. First John chapter 3 and verse 2, it talks about us being sons of God. And, and then it says this, it says, that's exactly who we are, children of God. And that's only the beginning. Who knows how we'll end up? What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see Him. And in seeing Him, become like Him. So John says, we, we, we're, we're the children of God, and you know what? We don't fully know how this is going to develop, but we know that when we see Jesus, we will be like Him. So what is happening in the course of our earthly journey is God is gradually making us more and more like Jesus, and when we see Jesus, that transition will be complete, right? Because none of us is there yet, right? So we, we, we haven't got there. And we're all at different stages on this journey. That's why we need to appreciate one another and love one another and encourage one another because we're all at different stages of becoming like Jesus. And what I want to do today and in the next five Sundays is I want to talk about different aspects of being, living like Jesus. But I don't want to look at kind of the, 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 the characteristics of Christ, like He was humble or, or, or that Jesus was patient. I, I don't want to look at that side of things. I want to look more at Jesus' actions. How did He live? and see if we can glean some encouragement from them. I believe the Christian life is the best life you could live this side of heaven. I really do. I believe the life we have in God is absolutely the best. In John chapter 10, Jesus made this statement. He talked about the thief who was looking to bring destruction and said, the thief's only there, that's the devil, to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life. I'll stop there for a moment. How many of you would say you've found more and better life since you found Jesus? That's good. Now, I'm going to 
think that those of you who didn't raise your hand probably got a shoulder issue and that's totally forgivable. <laughs> All right? Okay. Because if you haven't found, if you haven't found more and better life since you found Jesus, you haven't tapped into the real thing. So Jesus said, I've come to give real, eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. And that's how we should be living. That's the life that Jesus came to give to us. I, I'm totally convinced that here on a Sunday morning should be the best place you could possibly be. Because you know what? We should be the happiest people on earth. We celebrate the life that we have found in Jesus. Our gatherings are a celebration of faith and of hope. They're a celebration of the life God has given us, real and eternal life. I'm not here Sunday mornings to tell anybody how bad they are. I'm here to tell you how good God is. I'm not going to criticize your level of commitment to God. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk up God's commitment to you. I'm not here to point out where anybody falls short. I want to emphasize how God always goes above and beyond because Jesus really has given us a better life than we ever dreamed of. And we need to be living that life to the full, enjoying it to the full. So we're going to look at six ways to live this full life like Jesus. And we're starting this week with this one, party like Jesus. I thought you'd like that one. That's why we're starting with it. Party. I mean, like, live this life to the full. Enjoy this life to the full. You know, party like Jesus. Jesus said, this life should be a celebration. It should be something that's incredibly exciting and joyful. And, and, and you know what? There's no promise, of course, that it won't have its ups and downs and its pitfalls and its problems. But the big picture is this. We've got a fuller and a better life than we could ever have had because we belong to Jesus. So I want to I look at Jesus in three party situations, and I want to draw something from each one of those, okay? So, so we're going to start over predictably probably in John chapter 2 and verse 1. So John chapter 2 and verse 1 says, three days later there was a wedding in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were guests also. There's, I want to pause there because there's a statement that's made there that I think has got considerable significance. Jesus and his disciples were guests also. Now, a lot of us have been through the stages in our life where we had to make guest lists for weddings, right? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. There's the people you really want to be there and then there's the people you've got to invite. <laughs> right? It's, it's, you know, and, 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 and because you've got a limited number, it's like some of the people you've got to invite are keeping out some of the people that you really want there. And, and it's difficult. And it's particularly difficult when you've got two families, bride and grooms, that are trying to work this thing out, you know. I'm sure there may be some couples in history who never made it to the altar because of the arguments they had over who was going to come to the wedding. It's, it's hard. 
But when it came down to it, here's what I love about this verse in John, in John chapter 2. Jesus was the kind of person you wanted at your party. How about that? I mean, I mean just, just think about that for, for, for a moment. It's like if, if I said to you that Jesus is coming here next Sunday in person, that would cause some of you some concern, right? I'd be like a little bit on edge. It's like, okay, whoa, dear Lord, he sees right through us, right? It's like, you know what, should I put a tie on? It's, it, Jesus didn't make them nervous. They wanted Jesus to be at their celebration. Be the kind of Christian that people want at their celebrations. Because we all know the other kind. And some of us have been the other kind at times. Hello? Right? Be the kind of Christian that people want at their celebrations. All right, verse, verse 3. When they started running low on wine at the wedding banquet, Jesus' mother told him, they're just about out of wine. That's it. I don't want to get in trouble here, but that's like a typical mother slash woman's response, I think. You know, because she saw the need. She saw the problem. So there's a problem here. Jesus, is, is something going wrong here. We need, to, we need to fix something. Now, he hadn't yet performed any miracles at all, but... but who knows whether Mary was asking for a miracle as such, but it was like Jesus is a problem here that we, that we need to help out. It's, it's, it's how women tend to react to things. Just a word to some of you younger married men. Um, if you're an older married man, I dearly hope you've learned this. But, but if you're a younger married man, you know, if your wife says to you, could you put a new light bulb in my closet, please, when you get chance? She doesn't mean when you get chance. Okay? Okay? I'm doing some translating here for you. She doesn't mean it. She means now. Right? So, so, so here's the thing, guys. You might be sitting there thinking, when I finish my coffee, I'll take care of it. Don't do that. Please don't do that. It could be very difficult. <laughs> so Mary sees they're running out of wine, and he's, okay, we've got to fix this. We've got to do something about it. So she says to Jesus, and then in verse 4, there's one of the most difficult verses to actually discover the full meaning of in the Gospels. Jesus said, is that any of our business, mother, yours or mine? This isn't. This isn't my time. Don't push me. So here's the typical male response. <laughs> it's like, you know what? Nobody asked us to get involved. Not my circus. It's really none of our business. But, but then the second part of this where he says, this isn't my time. And here's, 
what I'm saying, you know, biblical scholars over the years have, have given different concepts and ideas of what exactly was meant by this. And, and I go along with the school of thought that Jesus is saying, I'm going to do something, but I'm not going to do it now. Jesus was aware of the problem, but it was like Mary said, come on, let's go fix it. Jesus said, no, hold back, hold back, hold back. My time hasn't come yet. Don't push me. The person with the problem hadn't approached him or the action Jesus was going to take. He was waiting for the moment to do that. He wasn't brushing off the need that was there, which was a a very real one. Marriage celebrations went on for days. And can you imagine? I mean, imagine just a regular wedding reception and they ran out of food. That would be embarrassing for the hosts. So, so here's what I want to say. While Jesus was enjoying the wedding with his disciples, his friends, he was still aware of the needs of others around him. And here's what I want to say today and draw from that. While we are celebrating this good life God has given us, be aware of others. Be aware of others. Jesus was aware of what was going on around him. Even though he was there and he was, and, and you know how it goes at weddings, right? You go and you, 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 you sit through the ceremony and then you, you go into the cocktail hour and you gravitate to a table with, with, with some of your friends. And then there comes the moment when you're going through to actually eat the meal and there's that nerve-wracking moment when you get your place card and you want to see who you're sitting with. Right? It's like, oh my Lord, let's hope. There are some weird people here, right? And so, and so what? And so what? You know, so so what you tend to do is human nature. You gravitate towards your friends. So here was Jesus at a wedding with his disciples, hanging out with his friends, but he was still aware of the need that there was around about. Here's what it says in Philippians two, verse four: Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Be aware of others. Forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. 1 Corinthians 10, 24. We want to live well, but our foremost efforts should be to help others live well. While we enjoy the life God's given us, Let's live aware of others. Now, most of us know how this story ended. Uh, Jesus told them to go get jars full of water, and when they poured it out, they found that it was actually the best, the best wine. And, and I love the fact that this was the first miracle, and some of you enjoy wine, who enjoy wine probably love the fact it was the first miracle too. But, 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 but here's, here, here's, what, here's why I love it. You know, why, why didn't Jesus start with raising Lazarus from the dead, right? Ta-da! But he didn't. He started by turning water into wine at a wedding ceremony. Why did he do that? I'll tell you why he did that. Because the message that that sends is that Jesus is interested in the slightest detail of our lives. It isn't just the major crises 
that Jesus is, is going to be focused on, but actually we can turn to the Lord at any time and with everything, and he cares, and he's interested, and he will come to our aid all the time. That's why that's the first miracle. So, so here, the first lesson about this, partying like Jesus, don't get totally tied up with you and yours. Be aware of others. So the second party is the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of the big Jewish celebrations, and it was the biggest one of the year. It was like Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, all rolled into one. It was absolutely huge. It was an eight-day-long celebration that was remembering the 40 years the children of Israel had spent in the wilderness going towards the Promised Land. And it was one of the three annual feasts that all Jewish males were encouraged to actually be at. So the city of Jerusalem was absolutely jammed with people during the Feast of Tabernacles. It was an incredibly happy occasion, which actually was also a celebration of the harvest. Right through the week, sacrifices were offered. Worship was taking place day after day after day. And every day of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles started with the priest going to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher and drawing water from the pool. And then he would bring it to the temple area and he would pour it into a special bowl. And that reminded them of how for 40 years in the wilderness, God provided water out of a rock for the children of Israel. The last day was the big day. And on the last day, there was a huge procession where people walked around the temple area seven times with music, with dancing, waving palm branches, and the sacred water was poured out for the very last time. Now, ahead of the Feast of Tabernacles, in John 7, it says this, verse 8. John 7 and verse 8. It says, Jesus' brothers had been saying to him, hey, it's time for tabernacles, let's go. Jesus said to them, you go ahead, go up to the feast, don't wait for me. I'm not ready. It's not the right time for me. He said this and stayed on in Galilee. But later, after his family had gone up to the feast, he also went. But he kept out of the way, careful not to draw attention to himself. So here's the biggest party of the year, but Jesus doesn't go yet. And what I want to draw from this is as we live this celebratory life as followers of Jesus, be selective where you show up. Be selective where you show up. Jesus didn't go to every party. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about parties here, but that's true as well. You don't have to go to every party you're invited to, you know. But I'm not specifically necessarily talking about parties here. See, Jesus' brothers were saying, if you stay here in little Galilee, nobody's ever going to get to know who you are. Go to Jerusalem and show them what you've got. But Jesus didn't go. 
living in the 21st century, some of you might fall out with me here, but that's never happened before, so it'll be a new experience. In the 21st century, I'm going to tell you this. There's no need to enter into every social media conversation. There's no need to get involved in every conflict and every discussion. We need to value what it is that we can bring to the table that nobody else can and not get bogged down in the craziness of this present world. Verse 14 says, with the feast halfway over, Jesus, Jesus showed up, and He was in the temple teaching. So, he, he was there. He was some part of the temple talking to a few folks and teaching them, but, but, but still, he, he wasn't prominent at all until, until the final day, right? Eight days of party, the last day now. They've had the big celebratory march around the temple. Everybody was sung out, and, and, and they were celebrated out, and they'd come the last day. They poured seven gold pitchers of water from the pool of Siloam, and, and, and it was like, yay, that, what a fantastic party. And then comes what I call, please don't be offended, the hold my beer moment. Verse 37, when it all just came to an end, on the final climatic day of the feast, Jesus took his stand. He cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. On the last day, Jesus said, listen, if all your feasting and drinking has still left you empty, if the nonstop partying with friends from all over isn't satisfying, if all the religious activities of this week haven't satisfied the longing within, if all the sacred water that's been poured out around the temple hasn't satisfied your inner thirst, if any of you still thirsty, come to me and drink. I love that declaration. I love that statement. It's like, you know what? If all of this is no use to you, I got something here. Jesus brought something unique to the table, and you bring something unique to the table. And what it is that you bring to the table is this, that you can point Jesus, people towards Jesus, just like Jesus then drew their attention towards Himself. The big thing that we've got that we offer this world is to be able to lift up Jesus. It's to be able to show them Jesus. It's to be able to present Jesus to them in any and every aspect of our lives that we're available to. Don't get bogged down in the weeds. You don't need to show up at every party, but make sure you take every opportunity to present what you can to a world that's still thirsty. So there was the wedding in Cana, be aware of others. There was the Feast of Tabernacles, be selective where you show up. And now comes the, the third party where 
I'm going to say six words that you've probably never heard a pastor say before. None of them are bad words. It's okay. All right? I'm going to say six words you've probably never heard a pastor say before. Hang out with the wrong crowd. Right? You never heard a pastor tell you to do that, right? You heard pastors tell you don't hang out with the wrong crowd. Now, okay, I know that. I know when I say this, it's open to misunderstanding, but take it in the context I'm speaking about, okay? Hang out with the wrong crowd. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. When the Pharisees saw him keeping that kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Jesus overhearing shot back, who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. I read a statement a couple of years ago by Andy Stanley, who pastors North Point Church, which is one of the most influential churches in our country the last decade or more. Andy Stanley said this, the gravitational pull of every church is towards the insider. We have to fight it all the way if we are to be about Jesus' business. The natural progression of a church is it becomes more and more introspective, self-centered. And we have to fight it all the way if we are going to continue to be an influence on those out there who don't know the Lord yet. In Matthew 11, verse 18, Jesus talked to some of his critics again, and he said this, John, that is John the Baptist, John came fasting, they called him crazy. I came feasting, they call me a lush, a friend of the riffraff. Opinion polls don't count for much, do they? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. They call me a friend of the riffraff. I want to encourage you this morning, don't lose connection with the lost. Pursue them. Pursue them. 2 Corinthians 8, 19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sin against them. So Christ came to reconcile the world to himself. But then here's what it goes on to say in that verse, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We cannot help people to be reconciled to Christ if we stand back and keep away from those who don't know Jesus. 
You, know, you all know the story of, of Jesus with the crowd and how he fed 5,000 people. And the concern was the people had been there so long that if they were left to their own devices to travel to their homes, they, you know, they'd be weak because they hadn't eaten. And so Jesus sort of committed to, uh, you know, we've got to find some way to feed these. You know the story, right? And they looked around and there wasn't much food to be had anywhere, except there was a little boy who had five loaves and two fish. You know what? There was one person in that crowd who was not going to go hungry that day. But because he shared what he had, everybody was satisfied. He was okay. But he stepped out of being okay and entrusted his meal to the Savior's hands. And you know what? We need to step out of where we feel okay and safe at times to make sure we're connecting with those who really don't know the Lord yet. Now, we cherish the fellowship of fellow believers, but we can't be isolationists. When Matthew had a dinner for Jesus, the riffraff were welcome. Just using the word the Bible says, the riffraff were welcome, and they were wanted. And sometimes we need to go out of our way to invite the people who might not be our first choice of people to hang out with. And we all know those, right? I mean, you know, you've got colleagues at work perhaps and you really wouldn't want to eat lunch with them because they're obnoxious. Or, or maybe they're arrogant. Or maybe they're just totally full of themselves. Or maybe they're obnoxious and arrogant and totally full of themselves. <laughs> and it's like, no, I got my, you know, we got my friends here, we're good. But maybe what that person needs is just a demonstration that somebody's interested in them. And someone wouldn't mind spending some time with them. Go out of your way to connect with people who don't know Jesus. Hang out with the wrong crowd. Now, I, you know, I know, you know some of you purists are probably thinking, yeah, well, we've got, you've got to be careful. They don't, they don't pull you down. And you know, I know there's a whole other side to the story. I'm not that nuts. But here's, here's the thing. When, when I was a child, when I was a child, you had two flavors of chips. That's all there were, okay? For those of you watching in the UK, I'm actually talking about crisps, okay? But you know what the Americans have done to our language, all right? So crisps, crisps are chips, and chips are French fries, right? And you, know, you know the deal, right? And your bonnet is your hood, and your boot is your trunk. Yeah, they messed it all up, all right? So I'm talking about crisps for you watching in the UK. So, but you can only get two flavors of chips. There was OXO-flavored chips. I don't know if you get that here. Oxo was basically a brand of beef stock. And so I guess that was a beefy flavor. And the others were no flavor. Life was exciting in Britain in the 50s. <laughs> you can either have gravy flavored chips or no flavored chips. It was really exciting. So some of you think you got a hard life, you got no idea. So, 
But, but the saving grace of the plain chips was inside every bag. You had to search for it. There was a little blue pack that is twisted at the top that had salt in it. And so you'd look, the first thing you did, you'd open the bag and you'd take out, you'd look for the salt and you'd open it up and you'd put the salt on the chips. Now, there were some painful times when I opened a bag of chips and there was no salt. <laughs> that was tough. But then you had the real happy days when you had two bags of salt. And that was absolutely huge. But here's the thing. As long as that little blue bag was intact, it didn't make the slightest bit of difference to the chips that were around it. It needed to be poured out. It needed to connect. Make connections with people who need Jesus. Draw them into your life somehow. Don't get super cozy with you and yours, with family and friends. Listen, everybody out there is different. Everybody has got a story, and everybody matters. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus when Jesus was going through Jericho and Zacchaeus wanted to see him and he climbed a tree so he could see Jesus and, and Zacchaeus was the most loathed and, and he was the most unscrupulous man in the town. And when Jesus came to where Zacchaeus was, he did not point to him and say, you need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. He didn't do that. You know what he did? He said, hey, Zacchaeus, can I come hang out at your house? And he went to his house, and he listened to his story, and he showed Zacchaeus that he had value, and his life was turned around that day. Going out of here today, be looking for the person God puts in your path that you need to befriend and listen to. Party like Jesus and hang out with the wrong people. It was years ago, I read this statistic from the Billy Graham Association that it takes 13 meaningful encounters on average before a person comes to faith in Jesus. It doesn't just happen. You're not going to go talk to someone and, and, and say to them, okay, let me explain to you the, the way of salvation. It's right here in the book of Romans. And you're not going to go through that and say, now, would you like to pray and accept Christ as your Savior? And they say yes. If that does, that's wonderful. That is not the norm. The norm is that you will be a spoke in the wheel. You will be a link in the chain. And you know what's going to be that link in the chain is your love, your compassion, the fact you open your heart and your life to them. When Jesus partied, he stayed aware of others. When Jesus partied, he didn't get involved in stuff he didn't need to get involved in. And when Jesus partied, he hung out with the wrong crowd. If you're a teenager here today, I did not give you permission to go hang out with people your father said you shouldn't. 
But you get the point here, don't you? You get the point. Let's keep our hearts open and our eyes and ears open. And as we enjoy this abundant life in Jesus, let's do our utmost to share it with others too. Let's pray together.